All right, so First Kings chapter 1, let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we uh, love you, we serve you. Lord, we present ourselves to you with Bibles open to hear from you. God, we pray that just as we know, there's so many people worldwide for so many centuries that have claimed encounters with you through this word. We ask for the same thing tonight. We ask that no matter what condition we came in this church, you would meet with us, Lord, and just make us a little more holy, a little more set apart for you, a little more dedicated to you, a little more capable of obedience and faithfulness, so that in all things, Lord, we, we, we would be known as yours. So, Lord, use the study as you will for your glory in all of our lives. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, First Kings chapter 1. Again, we gave some of the background last week of, of the book. Uh, we see it's the very end of David's life. And it's going to be the start of Solomon's reign. And it starts by saying, now King David was old, advanced in years. And they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore, a servant said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord, the king. And let her stand before the king and let her care for him. And let her lie in your bosom that our Lord the King may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. Now, if you remember last week, I said that, <coughs> excuse me, the terminology that he did not know her is speaking sexually, that he doesn't go into her sexually. And it's speaking, this is a man with several wives and many concubines. So it's speaking just simply of his inadequacy uh, physically. And if you look how the history of kings in general, whether it be biblical kings or whether it be kings in other history books, that um, part of their show for their power was the amount of women that they had around them all the time. So this is just letting us know that David's physical body is greatly failing. But we're going to see that his mental capacities are not. So when the physical body is failing and the mental capacities are not, and things are going really astray as they are in this chapter, you can, you can find fault in David for this, can't you? So it's, it'd be different if his mental capacities were failing and his physical body were fine. Then you could say you could see how things go chaotic. But if your mental capacities are intact and you have the authority of a king, then you should be able to handle this situation. So what, what do I see anyways that's gone wrong in these four verses? And it's simply this. What's all the attention of these four verses about David? He feels cold. Let's, let's take care of how he feels. And because he's a king, we can go you know, into these extreme measures of finding a young girl to be by his side all the time to keep him warm. So it's all about how he feels and what's going on as they're taking care of how he feels. He's not making the decisions of a king, that God has him as king. He's not making decisions as a king. So you're going to see that there's conspiracy to overthrow the next rightful uh, heir of, of this throne. and He's going, and there's, he's going to have to react to all the insanity that's going on. So, as it says, King David did not know her in verse 4, 
last week I said it also hints at other things he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on behind his back. He's kind of lost control of, of uh, his family. So he doesn't know about Adonijah's plans to overthrow Solomon as king. So as all his attention is being paid to his feelings, rather than him making choices that lead Israel in a good direction, I just want to suggest that we do that a lot too, don't we? Very often we're led by feelings. How, how, do, how does something make me feel? Um, am I happy? What makes me happy? Uh, one of the most deadly phrases uh, is, hey, whatever makes you. And you got to ask, really? Whatever makes me happy? Um, <clears throat> there's a higher calling than whatever makes you happy. Um, and there's not many verses you'll find where God is actually counseling and leading and guiding towards happiness. What do you see God leading and guiding towards? Holiness. Holiness is high on God's agenda. Your holiness. You're being set apart for his use. And sometimes that means the opposite of happiness. Sometimes it's a call to poverty. Sometimes it's a call to selfless giving of time, talent, and treasure. Sometimes it's a call to move from home and family. Sometimes it's a call to receive training where others trained in your field can make hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you're called to go into a third world country and use that talent uh, for others. <clears throat> so I believe that as you pursue your holiness, you're going to find your happiness. But that's not how we're training our children, is it? We're training them strictly on happiness. And very rarely does holiness follow. So I think that's what's starting this chapter that allows the chaos. The physical body of David, it's bad that it's not working, but because the mental capacities of David are intact, there's no excuse. So this happens in verse 5. <laughs> then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Now, Adonijah is the oldest of David's sons, so there's somewhat of an understanding of him saying, I'm going to be king, right? He's the next oldest son. And then it says, and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother <coughs> had borne him after Absalom. Now, Absalom died in the book of Samuel, so Adonijah is now the oldest. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Now, it says Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zoleth, which is by Edrogel. He also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. Verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, who's one of the mighty warriors, uh, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. So first of all, you can see where Adonijah thinks that he has claim to the throne. Claim number one, he's the oldest remaining son. Correct? 
Claim number two, as we talked about being driven by feelings or happiness, he's also got the looks, right? It's being pointed out that uh, he's very handsome. So he's got he's got the the age, he's got the looks, um, he's got the ambition. We're clearly going to see he's very ambitious in this. But what doesn't he have that disqualifies him completely? The calling of God, right? He does not have the calling of God to do this. And could he know this or should he know this? I'm not sure. But here's what I do know, that David knows this. So if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, 1 Chronicles 22, 9, before this scene in 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles happens chronologically sooner and here's what we see in First Chronicles 22.9. Uh, God says to David, Behold, his son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. For I will give him peace and quietness to Israel in his days. Verse 10. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son. And I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So you see that Solomon had the calling, the anointing. We see that David knows this. And we're also going to see that David, at some point prior, promised Bathsheba that Solomon would indeed be king. So what happens to allow all this craziness to occur? <clears throat> well, what I, what, I, what I want you to see is this, verse 10. If Adonijah is indeed the right person to take over the kingship, and he knows it, if he's the right king and he knows it, then here becomes the question. Why did he not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother? In other words, when you operate in truth and righteousness and not selfish ambition or vain conceit, as Philippians says, right? When you operate in truth and humility, then you're not going to find yourself trying to accomplish something where you say, hey, don't tell so-and-so. Don't tell so-and-so. Don't tell so-and-so. If they knew, this could all come undone, correct? Now, if he's supposed to be king, would there be a reason not to invite these folks? No. So in other words, truth speaks for itself, right? Truth speaks for itself. With truth, you don't have to manipulate or strategize or any of these dances that Ed and I just trying to do and figuring out who can come and who should not come. So again, I mean, if we look at uh, the book of Philippians really quick, chapter two, this section of scripture is probably one of the most referred to parts of scriptures of no matter where I teach in the Bible, I always come back to this section because it just tells me so much. First of all, Philippians chapter two, verse three, think of Adonijah as you hear this. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or, or vain conceit. Adonijah already, right? But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And then the great... Um, section here. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And it talks about how even though he's in the very form of God, he became a servant. Not just any servant, but a servant who is obedient to death. 
an eternal spirit become man, becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. And I'll say, therefore, God highly exalted him. Therefore, can I hear it one time? There we go. There's the perfect one. Why is it there? What is it for? All right. Now, therefore, God highly exalted him. Why did God highly exalt him? Because of the tremendous humility of becoming a man, to become the servant of a man, to become an obedient servant of a man, and he's obedient even to the point of death, and not the death of falling asleep in his rocking chair, but the death of a cross. Therefore, God highly exalts him. And gives him the name that just yesterday churches all over the world for millions of people. His name is exalted for them every Sunday, hopefully every day of the week as well, hopefully here. So, um, so you can see um, Adonijah is simply not walking in these biblical paradigms of blessing. He's kind of out of on his own here. So, truth speaks for itself there's no need to to manipulate strategize or anything imagine if hate to use pastor steve as an example already when he just got the news but imagine if he's not supposed to be a pastor and somebody in his life knows it how embarrassed he'd be that i announced it publicly right you know and, and him figuring out who to invite and who i can't invite and whatnot it's no way to live so truth speaks for itself why didn't he invite these others so verse um 11. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, doesn't know it. So see this emphasize on the things David doesn't know so far. Okay, he's a mighty king. He's been a great king. Now, as he's petering out, ever since the sin with Bathsheba, he's been petering out. And the emphasis is on what he doesn't know. And he's being acted upon all the time. And you can see the transition from, from 2 Samuel 12 that we read last week with the sin with Bathsheba, where David's a mighty king and Israel's in great shape. Sin with Bathsheba, you don't see David acting out as king anymore. You see him being acted upon, and you see Israel tailing off all the way to, to first kings here, as, as now he's in bed, and he's passive, and he's weak, and he's dying, and his, his sons are out of order, just like Absalom was, so now is Adonijah. So, um, so Nathan speaks with Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, doesn't know it. Come, please, let me now give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Now, if you look around the Bible, I don't think you're going to find David swearing that to Bathsheba. But I did show you in 1 Chronicles 22 that it's clear that David knows it's God's heart that Solomon followed him as king, correct? So although we don't have anywhere in the Bible where we see that this conversation between David and Bathsheba where she's able to say, didn't you swear this to me? We don't see that anywhere. So people, so some will suggest that Nathan and Bathsheba are going to play on David's poor health and say, you made us a promise you're not keeping, and him think, maybe I just don't remember that they're playing him, but I don't think there's any reason to believe that. This is showing his mental faculties to be just fine throughout this chapter, and as I showed you before, David has already received word from God 
that David's gonna that Solomon's gonna build the temple, and that um, in the promise of building the temple that Solomon's gonna be king, that God will call him a son, and Solomon will call God a father, and they're gonna have this wonderful relationship as as, as God blesses Solomon's reign forever. So so we clearly know David's in the know that Solomon's gonna be king. So he says, why then has Adonijah become king? Then while you were still talking with there with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So he's going to send Bathsheba in and say, what's up with this whole thing with uh, Adonijah being king? And while you're in the middle of saying, you told me that Solomon would be king and all these things, while you're doing that, then I will come in and I will give the same testimony. Okay, now the Old Testament's big on the twofold witness. You know, there'd be two or more witnesses to something. So Nathan's going through with that. He's saying, you're going to be the first witness saying, you made an oath to me. I'll come in as a second witness saying, hey, look at this craziness going on. Did you actually say this, David? Adonijah's king. I thought it was going to be Solomon. So it's the twofold witness that you see as early as Exodus 25 when God tells Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant. And in the building of the Ark of the Covenant, he says, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where the priest is going to sprinkle the blood of the Lamb for the forgiveness of Israel's sins, you're to put two angels, one at the head and one at the foot of that Ark of the Covenant, and you're to angle their heads down towards the middle of the lid of the Ark to witness the shedding of the blood of the Lamb on the lid here. They're, they're serving as the two witnesses that, yes, a Lamb was slaughtered. Yes, Israel's sins are forgiven. So... So it's on the testimony of two or more witnesses that a matter is established. So here you see Nathan saying, you go in, you say what's going on, then I'll go in and I'll be the second witness and, and uh, back it up. Okay. Where am I? 21? So Beersheba went into the chambers to the king. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. Now, just take note of that here in verse 16. Here's the queen, the wife of the king, and she's going in and she's bowing down, paying him homage. And there's another woman in his bed, isn't there? Okay. Now it says that they don't have sex together, but what an awkward scene, correct? Okay, so I just want you to see this position that Bathsheba's in as she goes in to her husband who has another woman in his bed keeping him warm and she's bowing down in front of the scene paying homage to the king. And the king said, what, what is your wish? So in other words, Abishag has the preferred position in the kingdom right there, doesn't she? Okay, she has the bed of the king and Bathsheba doesn't. What is your wish? Then she said to him, my lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my Lord the king, you do not know about it. How many times is that going to come up? Okay, the constant emphasis on when David doesn't know as king. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king. Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he is not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you. So although Adonai is acting as king, what does Bathsheba suggest here? You have the authority, right? 
all the eyes of Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my Lord the King after him. Otherwise it will happen that when my Lord the King rests with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon be counted as offenders. So she's basing her testimony on a call for David to remember, right? Remember that you swore to me that Solomon, our son, would sit as king. She's counting on his memory. She's counting on him to remember. Now, that word remember is a really significant word in our Bible. If you go back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, you go to the flood story, which encompasses Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. And again, as I go over chiastic patterns with you guys, where is the main point of a chiastic pattern? In the middle. So the very center of the flood narrative is Genesis 8, verse 1. Three words. It says, God remembered Noah. He's floating on the high seas, him and his family, and two of every kind of animal. And in the midst of floating around, uh, God is about to start drying up the earth. He's about to start draining the water. He's about to start bringing Noah and his family in to repopulate the earth. And the stopping of the flooding of the earth and the starting of recreating the earth anew starts with the words, God remembered Noah. Doesn't mean he forgot Noah. He wasn't up there saying, oh my gosh, I did this whole flood thing down there. Totally forgot. They're just floating around aimlessly. When God remembers, that's the word that says he's going to act upon the promise he's made. He, it's now chronologically time for him to act upon a promise. So he remembers Noah. And then in the next chapter, we get that word remember again. And God says, I put my what in the sky? Rainbow, except for there is no Hebrew word for rainbow because if God told Noah, I put a rainbow in the sky, Noah said, what's a rainbow? I just found out what rain was the last hundred days, but now what's a rainbow, okay? So the Hebrew word is just the word for bow. He says, I put my bow in the sky. Now what's a rainbow look like? The bow of a bow and arrow, right? The weapon bow. And that's what he's putting in the sky, his weapon that he used against mankind. And which way is the bow facing? away from us, right? It's the rainbow shows us that we're not in danger of God's wrath of uh, flooding the world again. So it's what the, the bow or the rainbow is showing us. And God says, every time I look at that rainbow, I will remember my covenant that I made with you. So isn't this remarkable? We take pictures of rainbows, we say how beautiful, but nobody seems to put on there. Isn't it cool that God promised to look down on this very thing that we're looking up at right now? Okay. That's the beauty of the rainbow. Because you're actually looking at something God promised to look down upon, and you're looking up at that at that moment, at that beautiful rainbow. God says, I will remember my covenant. Okay, so now, um, is she so um, there's a call to remember here. So God remembers Noah as he's floating in the sea, and he brings him safely down to land. God said, I will remember my covenant that I made with you, Noah. I put my bow in the sky. And then, the most significant call to remember. 
is that Jesus will take a loaf of bread, tear off a piece and hold it up and say, this is my body broken for you. And he'll hold up a cup of wine and he'll say, this is my blood that will be shed for you. And he says, whenever you eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering is a very important thing, isn't it? Listen, Peter will say in one of his letters, it is good that I remind you of these things. He said, you've heard these things before, but it's good that I remind you of these things. Your entire redemptive walk with God is a walk of remembering, isn't it? A walk of remembering. So what helps you to remember? Memorizing scripture helps you to remember the promises of God, right? Daily Bible reading, not weekly or bi-weekly. Daily Bible reading helps you to remember these great calls to remember. Never missing a communion service. People disregard communion. It's maddening to see people leave after the message on days of communion because they want to get out and not wait for communion. When Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That, I think, needs to be said at communion services. Before you leave, just now, he says you have no life in you. If you're leaving early, okay, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So those of you with no life, you're dismissed. Those of you with life, <laughs> stick around with doing communion. Okay, you already know the sign that I'll put over my door if I ever start a church, right? People leaving communion early. It says Judas left early too. Okay, right. yeah, communion's an important thing. So it's a call to remember. And when you do take communion, you do need to stop and remember. Um, that's not an appetizer. That's a call for you to meditate and remember that although your body as a sinner deserves punishment, you're looking at the remembrance of his broken body, the one who never sinned. You're looking at a representation of the blood that was shed so that your blood would not have to be shed. So you do this in remembrance of him. So Bathsheba calls David to remember the promise that he had made. Verse 22. And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, me your servant. Some versions I like it says, but he's not invited me, even me. Okay, how could he not invite me? Ever feel that way about a party? How did he not invite me? Okay, so nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaniah, nor Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And have you not told your servant who would sit on the throne of, of my lord the king? Now, Nathan comes in. And he's going to speak this truth to David. And he's not David's wife, Bathsheba. He's not the queen. He, he's, he's, he's a confidant. And he has the guts to say, you go in first, Bathsheba, then I'll come in. 
and we're going to say that your older son, your oldest son, is criminally negligent or criminally not negligent but intentional about overthrowing the rightful heir to your throne could be punishable by death you're going to accuse the king who remember his grief over absalom oh absalom absalom and he's very upset over over that absalom had to be killed for trying to overthrow uh oh try to become the king and now adonijah is doing the same thing and nathan's got to have the guts to go in there and say something to him now listen what why does nathan have the credibility to speak to the king in the ways that he does credibility comes through telling the truth when it wasn't easy to tell somebody the truth as hard as it is to tell them the truth it builds your credibility because first of all truth is not as common as it ought to be correct um i think billy joel sang about this with honesty and um so you either have people that don't tell the truth or you have people that only tell the truth when it's easy but where are the people that tell the hard truths and those are going to be the most important truths to tell so who are those folks and are they in this room right now and can they tell the truth in a way that the one that's hearing the hard truth can say you know what that was very hard for me to hear but you know what i know more than anything you love me you said that you love me and, and if you didn't love me, you probably would not have done that hard thing that you just did for me. So we tell the truth in love, correct? So, so, um, so how, this is how it sounded. Where did Nathan get his credibility with David? It came on David's worst day of his entire life. And it came when Nathan told him a parable. And the parable was clearly condemning David's behavior. And David didn't realize that the parable was condemning his behavior. And when David got the seriousness of the parable and declared death upon the perpetrator of the parable, Nathan's hard truth to David was what? You're that man. You're that man. Okay. He didn't walk away without saying that and just saying, listen, I got him to confess that it was an awful thing and deserves death, but I just failed to tell him that it was him that deserves death because that could have meant my neck, right? So in other words, a hard truth had to be told. Nathan showed up to tell it, and guess who's still in David's life in 1 Kings, the next book? Nathan's still in his life. Guess who's still in the inner circle of trust? It's Nathan. Guess who has the credibility to say this next hard thing to David and have the confidence to say it? It's Nathan. It's the one who built his reputation upon truth-telling, truth-telling in difficult situations. That's where friendships lie. Friendships are going to lie in those places where you say, my friend will tell me like it is, even if I don't want to hear it. Okay. It, it's, that's, that's where you earn the title, friendship, um, rather than acquaintance or something else. All right. So, verse 28, the king David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. What's different now? Different posture before the king, correct? Now she's standing before the king. Why? She told the hard truth. She got her credibility back. She's, this is her being restored to her position as queen. It's not Abishag that's in the key position anymore. She's standing before the king as the queen. Okay? So now she's standing before him. 
And the king, she earned it though, didn't she? She went in and said a hard truth, said something's out of line here. Hey, listen, king, you made a promise you're not keeping. That's not right. That's not an easy thing to tell a king, right? Okay, you're letting things get out of control. That's not an easy thing to tell a king. So now she stands before the king. And the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son shall be king after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. So I will certainly will do this day. Now, you get a woman of integrity who does a hard thing of integrity. And you get a man of integrity who does a hard thing um, that a man of integrity will do. And when you're keeping close circles with another man of integrity, guess what the result's going to be? That day, this is going to be set right, right? Okay, so look at this circle of David, Nathan, Bathsheba. Then you look at the circle that Adonijah chose, including Joab. Okay, Joab, when David said, don't harm Absalom, no matter what, no matter what, what does Joab do? Kills him. Okay, um, I think I brought up last week with the David and Bathsheba story. Some scholars suggest that Joab actually told Uriah. Hey, the king slept with your wife, knocked her up. Now he's going to try to blame you. Be careful. Because everything you're, everything Uriah does is very condemning to David from that point forward. Okay? So Joab doesn't seem to be all in for David. He seems to have some other motives at different points. Although he had great victories for David. He won Jerusalem over for David and all these things. Yet, if he's that, how come Nathan knows how things should go and Joab doesn't? Or does Joab know how things should go? Like, does he get a higher position with Adonijah than he would have with David? Because David has been an eye. So is it a self-serving thing Joab is doing? I think it's safe and likely to say yes there. So who does David surround himself? People that will tell him the hard truth. Who does Adonijah surround himself with? People who just say, what's my position with you? It's higher than with David. I'm on your side. So Adonijah is surrounded by self-serving people. Where David is surrounded by selfless people. See the difference? Okay. Is everybody thinking of your friends right now? <laughs> thinking the type of friend you are. Thinking of the truth you need to say or the truth you need to hear. Because not only is it difficult to tell the truth when it's hard, but it's also difficult to hear the truth when it's hard, right? So receiving truth with dignity and grace. Uh, David did that well, didn't he? Second Samuel 12 and here. Okay. This is how bad situations turn out good. This is how your bad situations can attach Romans 8.28 to them. This is how your bad situations could have Genesis 50.20, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. This is how things work out in the end. When you don't compromise, you call things to account when they're out of order. You speak the truth, you speak the truth in love. You honor the truth more than you honor your comfort. You honor your holiness more than your happiness. These are the ingredients of making godly men and women. So the ingredients that make godly men and women that literally, just by how they live their life, start transforming other people's lives. It's what light does to darkness. just takes over. Okay? But it requires the commitment to truth that you see in, the, in these passages. It requires a, a commitment to say truth is more important to me than comfort. It requires a commitment to, to say 
what that person did that I got to call them to the table on, if it makes me angry or if it makes me upset or whatever it makes me, that's not how I'm going to go into telling them the truth. I am going to make sure that they see that I love them when I go in to tell them the truth, that I wouldn't bother with the truth if I didn't care greatly for them. That's where your credibility is going to lie. That's where you're going to be in circles that transform darkness into light. Your light will then spread. All right. Uh, let's see. Richard, we're 28. No, I did that. 31. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let my lord King David live forever. Now, if that were going to happen, they wouldn't have to worry about his taking over. But that's it's what they always say to a king as they're leaving type of thing. But now listen. So the story started with Bathsheba prostrate before the king with another woman in his bed, and she's only given to us with her face to the ground in desperation, right? She's desperate to say something's going wrong. you got to make it right. So in desperation, she's bowed before the king. Because of David's righteousness, because of Nathan's righteousness, because of Bathsheba's righteousness, she disappears from the room as Nathan comes in. She's called back into the room. She's standing before the king. She's heard by the king. The king says, this very day I will do this thing. And now she's back down in the original position that she found herself in a little while earlier in desperation, face to the ground. Now she's in that position with what? Gratitude, correct? Listen, this is a picture of your walk with the Lord, right? Where do you go in your desperation? Right to him. Prostrate, prostrate on the ground. What, how long would that journey be? This one's a day long, but how long will your journey be? Don't know. Um, walking a journey with a family I've told you about, Christmas Eve, daughter overdoses, easily should be dead. Look like she's dead when she's found. And now it's 38 plus what's today's date? 11, 49, seven weeks ago today. I visited her yesterday. Her eyes are open. She hears and she receives. She speaks a few words. Um, so Christmas Eve, I'm at her bed. She's on life support. She's not breathing on her own. She's unconscious. Little to no brain waves. And we're on our knees at her bedside, praying desperately to God. Yesterday, on our knees at her bedside, giving great thanks to God. And she's awake and she hears us. She knows the name of her dog. She knows the names of the people that are visiting her. She hears everything. She understands. If you say something funny, she's going to smile. She just can't talk very well. And she's very, very weak. And hopefully she'll just keep getting better and better. But, you know, you see yourself in desperation on your knees, on your face. And then you, you walk this journey out faithfully every day. Her parents have been absolutely amazing. Um, if you knew that incredible problems that were going on between parents and her when the overdose happened. It's remarkable to hear when they texted me to say what Olivia's speaking. The very first words were, as, as the dad was rubbing her feet, he rubs her feet and her legs to keep the uh, circulation going and so forth. He's rubbing her feet and her legs and he sees her looking now at him. And um, of course he's getting overwhelmed and he starts talking to her and he says, I love you, Olivia. And her first words back were, I love you. And that was not happening before the overdose, not even close, way closer to hatred than love. And now it takes something like this to get a confession of love.
from her. But it's just amazing to see. Christmas Eve, she goes to bed, hatred in her heart, she overdoses, and she's still in the position of being in bed. And as she looks at her dad rubbing her legs and her feet, she expresses her love for him. So, 32. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule and take him down to Gihon. The mule is the uh, animal of a peace, of a peace, of a king in peace. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then he shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Now. What's the difference between this announcement of a king and Adonijah's announcement of a king? Adonijah's announcement of a king is, don't invite them, right? This is a very free and clear, hey, shout it, blow the trumpets, celebrate, let everybody know. And if Adonijah wants to come, he can come too, but he's not going to want to come, right? In other words, what does truth allow? Truth allows you to not worry about who's hearing and not worry about... Um, Picking and choosing who can hear what you're saying. The freedom. 36. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him. And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. Now, Solomon is riding on a donkey into Jerusalem with great celebration to be enthroned as Israel's great temple builder. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is going to ride into the same city on the same animal. And he's coming as the one who says, as he points at his body, destroy this temple. And I'll rebuild it in three days. Right? So Solomon comes in as a great temple builder. Jesus comes in as the one who the, um, represents the destruction of the temple. So this is what it sounds like for Jesus in Matthew 21. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey and a colt with her, a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord is need of them. And immediately he will send them. You guys miss sometimes the power that Jesus has. It's like, go take their donkey. If they say, what are you doing? Say, Lord needs it. They'll be like, okay. Can you imagine Carthy's trying that? Break into that car. If anybody says, Lord needs it. I'll go, okay. All right. And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, 
the fall of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And that interesting language. Because what am I comparing this to in First Kings? Another son of David. So this is Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he came into Jerusalem, the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from the from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, <clears throat> this is Jesus' official announcement that, Yes, indeed, I'm your king. Why did it take him three years to say it? Why, when he heals people, does he say, don't tell anybody who healed you? It's called the messianic secret. Why does he have them keep this messianic secret of his identity? People ask that all the time. Why does he just use it as proof of who he is and so forth? Well, first of all, people never keep that secret. Every time he says, don't tell anybody, the next verse says, so they went and told you. Okay? So, um, and what happens? He gets persecuted. He gets he gets trapped by the Pharisees time and time again. They try to trap him and all these things. And he doesn't want a public acknowledgement that he's the king of the Jews because Matthew 21, this entry into Jerusalem, what day is it that he does that? Palm Sunday, right? So that's when he says, yes, indeed, I'm the fulfillment of the verse that says your king comes to you lowly riding on a donkey. I now acknowledge I am your king. That was Palm Sunday. Count five days later, hanging on a cross dead. That's all it took. Once he said he's king, he only lasted five days. That's why he asked for the messianic secret. That's why he kept his secret, his identity. And um, they'll start the same one shouting Hosanna on Sunday or shouting crucify him on Friday. Isn't that something? Okay. Now, Forty-one. Forty-one. All right. Now, Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, "Why is there such a noisy uproar?" While he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest. And Adonijah said to him, "Come in, for you are a prominent man, and bring good news." And Jonathan answered, "Said, No, <laughs> it's not good news. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent." With him, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Joida, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city's in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Also, Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom, and moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make, make the name of Solomon better than your name. And may he make his throne greater than your throne. Then the king bowed himself on the bed. Also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel has given one who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose, and each one went his way. Now, are they being chased or pursued? You're actually going to see Solomon deal with this in grace, right? And uh, but they're all leaving, they're all taken off. Here's what Proverbs 28 1 says The wicked flee when no one's chasing. 
Isn't that the paranoia of the guilty? Okay. You ever hang out with somebody that has done something like criminally wrong and you're hanging out with them all of a sudden they hear sirens? They respond differently, right? Okay. Then, then hopefully you and I would. Okay. Um, the wicked flee when nobody's chasing them. Um, verse 50. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon saying, indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar. Saying, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put a servant to death with the sword. That's what happens to somebody who does what Adonijah did, correct? Then Solomon said, if he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Was wickedness already found in him? So is this a second chance? Yes. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. Solomon said to him, go to your home now. I had you in Matthew 21. Now you can just go to Matthew 20 right there. And I want you to see the principle at work in Solomon here. So Solomon is the son born out of the consequence of a great sin. So David and Bathsheba have a great sin. They have a seven-day-old baby that has to die, correct? And the grace of God allows another son to be born that's named Solomon that is going to be the successor to King David on his throne. So Solomon, I'm sure he's known of Psalm 51. You can read of his dad's great repentance for the sin that happened that made his older brother die at seven days old. Um, so he learns of repentance. He learns of confession. He learns of restoration and redemption. He learns that our sin is not the end of the story because of redemption and forgiveness. And what he certainly is showing here that when you're forgiven much, there's a call and that understanding to be very forgiving. So Jesus teaches it this way, and I think it's pretty powerful. Matthew 20, verse 1, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, so that's 9 a.m., and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever's right, I will give you. So the guy that he hires at 6 a.m., he says, hey, work for me today, I'll give you a denarius. Three hours later, he sees guys at 9 a.m. says, I'll pay you whatever's right. You go in there as well. So they went, again, he went out about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon, and did likewise. About the 11th hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? He said, because nobody hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received the denarius. They worked one hour, and they got with the guy that worked 12 hours was promised. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. 
and do not agree with me for a denarius. Take what's yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, um, what, what's, a, what's a principle, not necessarily the principle here, but what's a principle here? Um, the landowner's defense of giving the man that worked all day a denarius was what? It's what we agreed upon. Right? This is exactly what we agreed upon. And he says, you can't charge me with injustice if I give you exactly what we agreed upon, can you? You can't charge me with injustice because you got what, what, we, what we agreed upon. If I gave you less, then you'd have a charge of injustice, but you got exactly. And then he says about the others that you're now kind of jealous of because they got more. He says, can't I be more generous with the things that are mine? And what seems to be the common sense answer? And you can be more generous with, with other stuff, your stuff if you want to. And may cause jealousy and things like this, but you can. You can do that. And you can't charge the landowner with injustice unless he doesn't meet his original agreement. Now, um, what's the original agreement God has made with man? Well, it starts with by saying, of all the trees in the garden, they freely eat. Right? It starts with tremendous freedom and opportunities for blessing. But of the one tree that's in the midst of the garden, you may not eat. From the day you eat of it, dying, you shall die. So they eat of it. So how can God, the God to be found just, has to be sure of death, correct? So Hebrews will say it's appointed for man to die once, right? The appointment came in the garden. Now we all have that appointment for God to be just. Is eternal life part of the deal? It's not a part of the deal. When he made the deal with Adam, there were no loopholes, no plan Bs, no, hey, if you do eat the fruit, we'll talk and figure something else out. There was nothing like that. So in other words, every salvation that's ever happened is simply out of the generosity of God, not out of his debt. It's out of his generosity. It's the more that he wants to do. And if somebody doesn't receive him, that's not his anger, wrath, and rage. That's his being, him being just. I gave you what the original agreement stated, correct? Now, I mean, how many questions come? And I know we got to wrap up. I mean, how many questions come? How could God kill the Canaanites, the Philistines, all these things? Does that give you context for those answers? It's justice. Okay? Plus, he lets them know that you will stop worshiping me and you'll worship these other foreign gods if you let them live. They do let some of them live, and guess what happens to Israel? God sends Jesus. Jesus deals with the Jewish people, and three times Jesus will look at a Gentile and say, I have not seen such great faith as these Gentiles in all of Israel. In other words, there's a shift that happens now, right? Not that God's done with the Jews, Paul makes that clear. But as we started by talking about uh, in my opening prayer, I pray that your exposure to the word of God leads you to deeper, further obedience, not because you have to perform for God, but because God has performed for you. He has performed for you. You're under the original agreement, yet you're promised so much more. And 
this sense of entitlement that happens even in the Christian world with heaven. I think people just look at heaven as, as of course I'm going. Of course I am. And I strongly urge you off of that. Um, of course you're going because of Jesus. That's okay. But not of course you're going because you're, he wouldn't want you in heaven type of thing. Okay. We've got to understand that there's an overwhelming sense of humility that comes with your salvation. And <clears throat> that's why I love Philippians 2. If Christ experienced that type of humility, then I pray daily we would. Because I'm really afraid in my flesh that if I were Adonijah, our stories wouldn't look any different. I'd be pursuing that throne. I'd be trying to overthrow God's will. Because that power is very tempting, isn't it? And you can justify these reasons of doing things. But if God doesn't justify, then there's no justifying. So, seeking after God's will, reading this every day, humbly praying, staying connected, um, doing this together, having your close friends that will tell you the truth that you can tell the truth to. So we all can do better. We all need to do better. And uh, I'm very thankful for you guys. And um, and I pray that uh, the word helps us to grow a little bit more like God. So God, uh, again, your will be done, not ours. And uh, keep them safe as they go home. And Lord, I pray that um, your word just became a little more attractive to everybody. That um, you would find them just more and more, Lord, meeting with you. And uh, just truly uh, speaking of your name and glorious strength, Lord. We love you. We serve you. I thank you for uh, this gathering. pray that you bless them as they go. And I pray that you would uh, bless them as they come back next week. In Jesus' name.